Uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to look at the text we've, we looked at the last time we studied Exodus. And while you're turning there, I'm going to give you an update, as many of you have asked with great interest that really encourages a pastor's heart when you're concerned for your church's well-being. On the back, you've been given this financial update, and some of you have received one in the mail. And some of you, like my own family, were shocked by this number needed by 63019, 1.14 million. That can overwhelm you. But I want to, I want to encourage you with what the Lord has already done through you. Uh, you see, it takes about $712,000 a month for us to accomplish all the ministries of this church. So that means that God through you has already given almost, almost $9 million, almost $9 million. Not only that, to the, to the immediate and domestic missions of the church, but you've given ahead of time to the capital campaign and you've given aggressively to world missions. It's one of the most generous years we have ever experienced. Now, the reason we still have this deficit, that is that goal that we have, $428,000, is because we've had some a big one-time expenses. We have a full staff for the first time in a long time. We had to increase our budget this year quite aggressively. But that is where we are, and we are there because of your aggressive and generous giving through the year. And some of you said, you know, if we'd just known that we had a greater need, we would have given more. And you've already given uh, aggressively more, especially in March. So this is a very approachable, something that can really be accomplished because of what you've already been in the pattern of doing. So look at this, pray about this. And, and then here's the other thing I want to say, that uh, <clears throat> our giving has been just about what it has been historically if anything, it's, been, it's really been encouraging to see uh, giving increasing, especially among high schoolers and 20 and 30-somethings. Everybody else's has kept about the same. Nobody has quit giving. But uh, the younger people of the church have aggressively uh, uh, increased their giving as well. And the, that big influx of gifts that we experienced in March was an accumulation of a lot of really ordinary gifts. That's the way it ought to be. And that's really what I've been praying, that each of us would bring loaves and fishes, uh, ordinary gifts that may be sacrificial for us, but we think there's no way we could help with the, the mission of, of this church. But we bring those ordinary gifts, put them in the hands of Jesus, and he multiplies them. If we hit this goal, we'll fulfill all of our obligations to our local mission partners and uh, our obligations to our staff and so forth. And then next year, because we, won't, we don't anticipate those same uh, extraordinary expenses we had this year, uh, our budget should be smaller. So I hope you're encouraged by what the Lord has done in you already and that we pray for him to get a name for himself by the end of June. Amen by faith. Amen. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. As I ask you already, we're going to go back to that strange text, that strange story in verses 21 and following of the Lord encountering Moses as he is finally on his way, finally on his way to Egypt after he's argued with God and given all kinds of excuses and asked God to send somebody else. 
And God finally got uh, angry with uh, Moses, and Moses got the picture and decided finally to go. But it also seems to have been inspired a little bit, maybe a lot, by this threat that God would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. Moses takes off. We said, we said that he is presumed on the Lord's grace by not circumcising his son. Now, circumcision in the Old Testament is like baptism in the New Testament. It is this immediate recognition that we can't save ourselves, uh, much less save our children. And our children are as in, uh, in need of salvation in Christ as we are. So we bring them and say, Lord, take this little one for yourself. You work salvation in this one. And Moses neglected that. We can only presume that he neglected that covenant sign because he thought that his son was better than Pharaoh's son and he was more righteous than, than Pharaoh. And so he didn't need grace as much as one might think. So God stops him in his tracks and, or stops Zipporah in her tracks and threatens to kill the child unless he is circumcised. We looked at that passage a couple of weeks ago and tried to unpack it and tried to unpack its translation. I want to go back to it and look at it again theologically and I'm going more slowly in these early chapters of Exodus because I realize that Old Testament passages, Old Testament narratives are sometimes challenging for many of us, certainly have been challenging for me. Maybe you were you were brought up, if you are, have been a Christian for a while, maybe you grew up as I did with this idea that the New Testament is really what is applicable to us and the Old Testament is already, and that's, that's, uh, that's old stuff and doesn't need, it's not so applicable to us. We don't even need it. In fact, you can just carry a New Testament around with you. And, and, then, and then when we do go into the Old Testament, at least this, is, this was my background, we go into the Old Testament to find illustrations for what is happening to us between Christ and the church. And you can get the impression that God really wasn't doing anything of significance among the people of God in the Old Testament except to provide illustrations for us in the New Testament. Now, that would have been really disappointing to Moses, you know. It would have been discouraging to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses to say, he's not really doing anything significant among us just to make good illustrations for your preachers in the New Testament. And then it can be, it, it, it really revives the soul when somebody effectively hands a whole Bible back to you and says, you know, this is all one story. It's one gradually unfolding story and it's all about Christ. It's not just the Old Testament reminds us of Christ, but the Old Testament is revelation of Christ, Christ in His work of redemption. And this story, in this strange story, is a critical part of that revelation. I hope you're encouraged by it. Let's look beginning in verse 21, reading through verse 26. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. 
If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it, or as we said, Gershom's belly with it. She stroked his belly with blood. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And we explained last time that this is an expression of this is you are a covenantal relative of me now. So let him alone, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went, met him at the mountain of God, and kissed him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would see wonderful things even in a strange story from the Old Testament, wonderful things about our past redemption in Christ, our current redemption in Christ, that we might be emboldened in expanding the kingdom of God. Meet us powerfully, fall on us with Pentecostal power, we pray in Jesus' name and God's people said together, amen. I used a different illustration in the, morning, in the earlier service, and uh, I'm going to use a clearer one, I think, in this one, so maybe you can explain to the first service what uh, was so unclear to them. I was recently reading about a medieval collection of stained glass windows in uh, York Minster in England, and reading about the restoration of those windows in particular. Some of those windows had been completely obscured by dirt and grime to the point you couldn't even see through them. And just in the last few years, they've taken those panels out piece by piece by piece and cleaned them and restored them and seen symbols, images that they had not seen since the Middle Ages. And and the most striking window is one with Christ in the middle of it. And for centuries, Christ was obscured by the dirt and grime. He's revealed now, but he's been there the whole time. He was there through the Crusades. He was there through the, 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 through Waterloo. He was, he was there through the First World War. He was there through the Second World War. He was, he was there through... All of the conflicts, he was there earlier through the Civil War. He's been through all of the tragedies that that nation and the people of that congregation have experienced all along. Even though they could not see him, he was always there. When we read the Old Testament, we can think that because we don't see the name of Jesus or the flesh and blood of Jesus, that he is not there. And we can think that he just showed up for 30, 35 years in the New Testament, and now he's gone again. And we can, we can think in our spiritual depression, our times of anxiety or, depre- or, or our, our, our temptation, we can think Jesus is gone. Christ is far away from us. He's left us alone in our struggle. But the Old Testament and the New Testament insights into the Old Testament make it very clear 
that there has never been a time when Christ has not been redeeming his people, even before he made people. Because John says in Revelation that Christ was slain from the beginning of the world. That is, God, what, is, what has always been true in God's mind is merely being revealed gradually in history. Now, this, this passage that we're looking at shows us several things about Christ's presence with his people, particularly in this redemptive story, this redemptive drama called the Exodus, the most significant redemptive event in the Old Testament and clearly intended to anticipate the crosswork of Christ. And uh, it shows us several things. It shows us that Christ, as he was with the Old Testament people of God, is with us even in our captivity. And as he was with the Old Testament people of God, he is with us in our conflict with spiritual, with spiritual powers. And as he was able to draw them into the place of promise to bring conquest out of defeat, he will bring us victoriously home as well. Now, this, this idea that Christ is with his people always is what a friend of mine calls Christocentric solidarity. As a theologian, you have to think of fancy ways to say things, and it just means that Christ has always been united with his people. But he has always been united with his people in order to redeem them. To say it another way, there is no way anyone in all of redemptive history would ever have been saved, would ever have been redeemed, there is no way that any of us would be here today worshiping Christ had Christ not been with the Old Testament people of God, preserving them through all of their persecutions, all of the spiritual conflict. Christ has always been with his people. And so when Christ came in the flesh, he came uh, to, to remind us that he was always with us. When the Bible says, for instance, out of Egypt I have called my son. And, and Matthew says in chapter 2, that was to fulfill what was prophesied. He's referring to a passage in Hosea chapter 4, which is referring, Hosea is referring to this redemption from Exodus. Hosea, it seems, is just referring to the past. Out of Egypt I have called my son. But Matthew says... That was a prophecy of what Christ was coming to do. How does that all relate? How does God's redemption of his son, that's what Israel was called corporately, how does God, God's redemption of his son from Israel relate to the prophecy in Matthew 2, out of Egypt I have called my son. You remember Joseph took, uh, took Mary and Jesus to Egypt to escape Herod, and then, he, and then he returned. How does that all relate? Well, without getting too technical, I'll just say this. Jesus 
is going back through all of the same footsteps that God took Israel through, but he is doing it perfectly. And in retracing those steps, he is also reminding them that he is the one who was always with them and ultimately is the explanation for how they escaped Egypt. The first point I want you to see is that that Christ, because he was with his people in Egypt and in all of their other struggles in the Old Testament, it proves to us that Christ is with us too in our captivity in this world. I need to make it clear when I'm talking to Christians, when I say that we are captives in this world, we are in bondage, I don't mean that you are in bondage to your sin with Having been, uh, having been set free by Christ, what I mean is that you and I, like the rest of creation, are in what Paul calls bondage to the corruption of a fallen world. Yes, we are able to, to choose to do right. We are able to live obediently. We don't have to live as total slaves to sin. At the same time, we live in a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. We have bodies that don't work the way they're supposed to. Things happen in this world that are not the way it's supposed to be. We are in bondage to the corruption of a fallen world. We suffer, in other words. There is suffering for us. We give in to our sin. We suffer in relationships. We suffer pathological illness. We suffer anxiety. We suffer depression. We suffer the weakness of of old age, we suffer the weakness of wounded bodies, we, we experience disappointment. Every day we encounter the fact that this world is in bondage to decay, waiting for the day when Christ will redeem it from all of that bondage and make it the way it is supposed to be. In the meantime, where is Christ? He is with us as he was with the Old Testament people of God. He is with us in that fallen condition. I can prove it from the Old Testament. God says, God says when he announces through Isaiah that that, uh, a son will be born of a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. He was not saying that God would not be with them in the Old Testament until Christ came because there are other places throughout the Old Testament where God says, I am with you. He was just saying it will be even more obvious when Christ comes that I am with you. You'll see the personification of God in flesh and blood. But in the meantime, he was always with his people. He says that in any place you read that God is with his people, you see the function, you see the the personal work of Christ. That's a very important point to understand when you're reading the Old Testament. Any place that you see a function of one of the persons of the Godhead, you see the activity of that person of the Godhead. When God says, I love my people, you see the person of the Father loving his people. When you see someone move from unbelief to belief, you see the work of the person of the Holy Spirit regenerating the heart. And when you read that God was with his people, You see, you hear a description of the personal presence of Christ who comes to be with his people. 
When God says that he was with Joseph, for instance, when he went down into Egypt, it means Christ was with Joseph, that he was with him in his prison. He was with, Christ was with him. Christ is the one who enabled him not to grow bitter, not to lose faith. When we read that God was with his people in the pillar of cloud and the, and the pillar of fire, that he was with them in the rock. Well, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 4. We don't have to guess. He says, when God said he was with them in the rock, that was Christ who was with them in the rock. What I want you to understand is that God was not saying to his people in slavery in Exodus, you just need to hold on while I'm up here in my, in my comfort of heaven. I just want you to keep a stiff upper lip and just hold on someday you'll have it as good as I have it. But rather, Christ was with them in their suffering. Christ was with them in their suffering that they brought on themselves in their wilderness wandering. Christ was with them in the rock. Christ was with them in the, fly, the fire and the pillar. And Christ is with you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you are suffering, no matter what aspect of this bondage to corrupted, a corrupted fallen creation, no matter what part of it you're experiencing, disappointing relationship, a, a, a physical malady, a, a disturbing future diagnosis, persistent anxiety and depression, financial need, or things that you've even brought on yourself. You must not think that Christ is sitting in heaven with his arms crossed and say, I hope you'll work your way out of that one. Or just, just hang on there and soon you'll be in heaven and you can be with me. No, Christ is with you. I read this past week the account of some transcripts of, of interviews that were done with former slaves in the 1960s. Former slaves who were still living. And uh, I read the transcript of one in particular who, had, who was enslaved in my hometown. And it was like reading, it was like reading a, 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 a horrible family secret. As he described the way he was treated, the way he was mistreated, the way he was was beaten, the way he was separated from his family, the way his children were abused, and most likely by people whose descendants I would have known in my own church. And that man said in that interview, where was God in all of that? And what I hope someone said to him before he died Christ was with you. And Christ was not just standing on the sidelines, but Christ endured it with you. Christ endured it with your children. And Christ was taking on himself the stripes and the injustices and storing them up and will personally vindicate them in the judgment day against those who refused to repent. 
And likewise, whatever you are experiencing as a follower of Jesus Christ, Christ is enduring it with you. And someday he will personally bring his vengeance and his rectification on every wrong thing that you are experiencing or suffering. The presence of Christ, your union with him means that he is with you in your captivity. The presence of Christ with his Old Testament people proves that he is always with his people and with you as well. And that provides us encouragement in the midst of spiritual conflict. Now here's where I get that in this passage. When God confronts Zipporah and Gershom on their way and threatens to kill Gershom. I think this is what is happening. I think that God is doing some redemptive shock therapy. That God is reminding Moses and Zipporah that they are, in, they are in battle with spiritual enemies, including their own. And they are no match for them in their own resources. When Moses set out against Pharaoh, it seems he's going out in his own strength. He's going out in the presumption of his own righteousness. He goes, it seems like he's going out in the presumption of his righteousness of his son, which is superior to that of Pharaoh's son. And God has to stop him in his tracks and say to him, this matter of trusting me alone for your righteousness, trusting me alone for your protection against spiritual enemies is a life and death matter. I've got to wake you up. I've got to shake you by the nape of the neck. It's something like this, I think. A friend of mine was in law enforcement and uh, he was uh, always looking out for the safety of other people. And when his children uh, were coming along, he was always, you know, assuming the worst could happen. And so he's trying to get that across to his wife, who he thought was more carefree in looking after the children, especially disturbed him that she would leave a child in the basket, in the shopping basket, and go down the aisle with her back to the child. He said, somebody could snatch that child and take him away, and you wouldn't see it. So he was shopping with her one day, and she sent him on an errand to get something on a neighboring aisle. And when he came back, he saw her down at the end of the aisle with the, with the baby in the basket, and her back was to the baby. And so he quietly took the baby out of the basket and disappeared around the corner. And when she turned back, she saw the baby was gone. She went into a panic and screamed bloody murder. And then he reappeared with the baby. I don't remember exactly, but I think I had some marriage therapy to go through with those people after that incident, but he certainly made his point. This is what can happen. And God was doing shock therapy with Moses. And you are going up against spiritual authorities. You, you are not just taking your people out of bondage. You are taking your people out of bondage that is empowered by demons. And you are no match for them. You must go under the blood of the lamb. Your child must be, your family must be protected by the blood. And he's anticipating the work of Christ. This, when you, you learn to read these redemptive motifs in the Old Testament, when you see God being with his people, you, you are reading the presence of Christ. When you read that blood accomplishes protection, you are reading 
the provision of Christ. You are no match for this world in your own resources, but must come under the protection of Christ. And then I want you to see finally that the promise is conquest. The promise is that this one who has attached you to himself, the one who has united you to Christ, if indeed you've come to this point in your life where you said, I can't save myself, Christ must save me by his righteousness. And when you do that, he joins you to his life and he is the one who gets you through your life, accomplishing the calling that you've been given and into heaven with joy. But some of you think that the Christian life that you live now is not as well, it's just not as powerful, it's not as exciting, it's not as momentous, it's not as realistic as that which was occurring in these Old Testament days or even in the days of the disciples walking with Jesus. But I want you to realize that's not true. You are living in the most advantage, advantaged period of redemptive history that has occurred yet. You, you are not just looking at things uh, in, in, in shadows as they were in the Old Testament. Yes, Christ was being revealed, but it was just like glimmers of light coming through that, that stained glass window. And, 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 and you're not just living with Christ as, as uh, in body and, and blood on the outside of you, but you are living in this place, this place in redemptive history. When you have read and understand that Jesus has come in the flesh he has returned to the right hand of the Father, but He has sent His presence to you by means of the Spirit who lives in you. And He has distributed that Spirit in a more momentous way as we read about at Pentecost so that even our children are made more than conquerors. You are in His hand. You are in God's hand, in Christ's hand, like the rod that Moses held. That's just a stick of wood, Francis Schaeffer called it, just a stick of wood. And Francis Schaeffer had a sermon called God So Used a Stick of Wood. That, 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 that stick had no power. God could have told Moses to pick up his baby blanket. He could have told him to pick a dandelion stem. It would have had as much power because the power was the power of Christ working through Moses. And you have been picked up by Christ. You are, yes, just a stick of wood, but in the hand of Christ, you have been made powerful to push out the borders of the kingdom. You have, you have been included in his hand such that your prayers can cause demons to flee. Your prayers can heal. Your prayers can change the course of history. Your words about how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ can transfer someone from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. By participating in worship, you are rattling the gates of hell. We don't come to worship to be coddled, to be made safe, to be stroked, to be made comfortable. The Bible says we come to worship to rattle the gates of hell. This is what God does when he indwells his people 
by Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Christ has been doing that for you from all of eternity. Christ has been serving you. Christ has been, has been, has been working, laboring for your redemption since the beginning of time. It should melt your heart. This week I read about, no telling what I could have said if I'd have had my notes down here on the floor. This week I read about a woman named Kanitha Fazing. I probably slaughtered the pronunciation of her name because I've only read it. I haven't heard it. And apparently a lot of people have difficulty pronouncing it, so she's referred to lovingly as Mint. Mint was crowned recently Miss Thailand. And, and as soon as she was crowned, she was transformed immediately from a, from a pauper into a princess. She was given lucrative movie contracts, book contracts, labels. Well, what caught the world's attention was when Mint went home. She found her mother who has eked out a living all these years to provide for Mint and her siblings by digging through garbage cans, finding things that can be sold or recycled. The first thing Mint did when she returned home was to find her mother, and she found her mother in front of the garbage cans, and, you, and, and someone snapped a picture when this event happened. Her mother is standing against the garbage cans, and Mint gets her attention, and she turns around, and Mint folds up, completely prostrate in front of her mother, crown touching the ground, her sash still visible, her designer shoes on her feet, bowing tearfully thanking her mother. It's an image of what Christ has done for us, a princess bowing before a pauper, a king serving us, and yet the illustration is far from perfect because she was bowing to thank her mother who made extraordinary sacrifices for her, and Christ has served us though we have brought him nothing except sin and stripes and piercings. And yet there has never been a time in redemptive history Christ was not giving himself for our redemption. He has cherished us. He cherishes us. He makes us more than conquerors by taking us, delivering us out of our captivity and protecting us in our spiritual conflict. May God encourage you with the gospel. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we are speechless, thanking you for your love for us because we know by your word that the life we now live by faith in the Son of God, we live by means of one who loved us and gave himself up for us. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for loving and empowering us 
and fall on us unmistakably. Burn up all that is not of you, that Christ may be seen clearly in our lives and in the ministry of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said,